Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey guys, I want to welcome you to the weekly Wednesday for the Financial Freedom Newsletter, where every week, every Wednesday, we delve into something inspirational, motivational, something excerpt taken from the Financial Freedom Weekly Newsletter. Wherever you are, if you're listening on Spotify, on iTunes, Google, be sure to click the like, subscribe, share, comment. And without ado, let's get into the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast episode for the Financial Freedom Podcast. Really excited about today's guest, Ben Frazier. He's a CIO at Aspen Funds, and he's a seasoned financial expert with a passion for helping people make informed investment choices. So today we're going to be talking about our bread and butter topics, real estate, investments, financial planning, and I'm happy to welcome Ben to the show. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much, Christopher. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Um, tell the audience about your background, your experience, and then we'll get into what Aspen Funds does. Yeah, great. Thank you. As you said, I'm a, the CIO at Aspen Funds, and so we invest across uh, multiple asset classes, mostly in real estate, but also in oil and gas. And we've you know, been doing that for almost six years now. And prior to that, I actually started kind of in the finance world in banking. So I was a commercial lender and an underwriter for many years. And you know, kind of my origin story was, you know, working in corporate, you know, career ladder and had a lot of success as a lender and kind of hit hit the top of the ladder pretty quick and realized, you know, this is great, but, you know, I'm looking for some more challenges. And as I was, you know, doing um, a lot of underwriting, one of the cool things you get to do in that is get to look at the personal financial statements of every borrower that comes to the bank. And I've worked, worked for several banks and they mostly kind of focused on you know, business owners, entrepreneurs, and kind of high net worth individuals. And so I got to see some of the most wealthiest you know, clients at the bank exactly what they were invested in and, and what they did. And to me, it really kind of came down to two things, two, two commonalities that I noticed. One was a lot of them were entrepreneurs, a lot of them were business owners, and they created a lot of wealth through entrepreneurship. And the other was a lot of them invested in real estate, right? And lots of different kinds of real estate. Um, but it really got me curious and interested and wanted to kind of go and forge forge that path. So I was fortunate to be able to join Aspen Funds about six years ago um, and currently a partner and uh, getting to kind of build the platform that that we've been building now for about 10 years and getting to invest a lot of different fun things. Yeah, it's fascinating. I love that. Uh, I love um you know, once you follow the money and you see where the wealthy people are investing, it's kind of eye-opening. And um, like you said, you know, most of the majority, I think majority of millionaires, multimillionaires, real estate is a huge component. They invest in different, there's different strategies. Um, and so I always love talking with people who help these types of clients. So, you know, talk about 
essentially, you know, Aspen funds you, what was interesting is, you know, is primarily real estate, but you also mentioned something in the, in the green room was that you're asset agnostic. And I'm really curious, you know, for the listeners. Yeah. Well, it is, it's kind of interesting because our, our business has evolved over the past 10 years and 10 years ago, um, our founders started um, Aspen just kind of as an opportunistic thing. Hey, let's go try and make some money. They saw an opportunity in distressed debt, right? Distressed mortgages come out of the great financial crisis. And it was a great time to get into that, right? There's a lot of it and um, did very well. And uh, we've been running that business, actually continue to uh, for over 10 years. It's been, been a great niche. You know, we continue to operate it, still are finding good product, but it's kind of plateauing, right? There's not as much as as there was. It's kind of a counter-cyclical asset class, meaning that, you know, there's more of it when times are bad yeah, than when times are good. You know, it really kind of uh, you know, spawned this evolution of our business, which has always been very opportunistic. We always wanted to kind of be on the front end of economic tides, as we call them. So kind of the the, the big picture trends that are going on in the economy and positioning ourselves as investors. And so we started a podcast called Invest Like a Billionaire, where we've kind of just studied the ultra wealthy and try to figure out what are they doing? How are they investing? What is setting them apart from the average investor? And a lot of them are investing very heavily into real estate, you know, private equity, uh, hedge funds, and other alternative asset classes. And you know, most of these ultra wealthy are investing generally around a quarter of their portfolios <clears throat> into public equities, right? Only a quarter where most individuals, most high income earning professionals, they're investing mostly into their 401k and you know, maybe into a, a, you know, another account and have maybe 90% into the public equities. So it, it's, there's a very big divergence here, right? Of how the ultra wealthy are doing. So we really tried to model what the ultra wealthy are doing. And so we kind of do what we call kind of a family office approach where we're not so convinced that one asset class is the best thing since sliced bread and will always be the best thing since sliced bread. Because as you know, as investors intuitively know, things that go in cycles, right? There's, there's certain times that are better to invest in certain asset classes than other times. And so what we want to do is position our portfolios and position the off offerings that we're, we're, we're investing in um, with where we think the opportunities are going forward. That's caused us to invest in a lot of different asset classes. Uh, we've invested in multi-industrial, self-storage, retail, and actually a few years ago started investing in oil and gas projects, which we're very bullish on right now. And so it's it's really kind of you know taken the uh, constraints off where a lot of people say I'm just going to do multi-family syndications. I'm going to do that you know till I die. And hey, there's a lot of reasons to do multi-family. I love multi-family, but there's cycles, right? And and uh, there's a lot of concern in multifamily right now, which we could talk about if we wanted. But um, that's kind of our approach is we look at these big picture trends, where we think opportunities are, how do we invest as investors and create a nice portfolio that's balanced across multiple asset classes. And uh, I know a lot of the audience out there, physicians are really forward thinking. And there's this question, you know, there's this, uh, I think they're trying to delay the onset of the recession. There's interest rates. Uh, there's concerned with commercial real estate. So where are you setting your sights on? You know, what uh diff what other um strategies are you looking at and um and how can people position themselves if they in your fund? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're still bullish on multifamily. Uh, I want to be clear on that uh, because you know we do think there's opportunities there. Um, we're just being a lot more selective as I think most people are 
And we're actually shifting our, our strategies within multifamily to be less focused on value add and more focused on development. And I can get into that if we wanted to, but the the kind of big picture things going on, right? If you look at supply versus demand, we're seeing a confluence of a lot of things happening this year that I think is a little bit concerning for a lot of investors, especially in, in projects that were invested in, say, the last couple of years, because the last few years we saw this extreme uh, compression of cap rates, right? Values for multifamily just went through the roof, especially in Sunbelt markets where there was a lot of population growth, a lot of good reasons to invest in those markets, but the kind of price of entry uh, went through the roof. And what, what happened was, um, I think coinciding with that, there was a what I call a syndicator bubble, right? There's, you know, everyone and their uncles, you know, raising money for real estate now, it seems. And while I think it's great to create more access, you know, these types of assets, the, the, the challenge is a lot of these uh, folks were less experienced and they also used a heavy amount of bridge debt, um, which if you know from the bridge debt terms, they're generally very high leverage. They generally have floating rate interest rates. They have short maturities. So they're generally two to three year maturities. Well, that's great in a bull market when everything's going up, right? You can kind of grow out of it and you can, you know, leverage is really, really good uh, when you have things go well for you, but it can also be a really big challenge uh, when things aren't. And so what we're seeing right now is all this demand that was kind of pent up that was investing into the, the multifamily space. And now we have interest rates that are going up that puts a lot of pressure on cap rates. Um, and you know, you have investors that are kind of concerned. You have a lot of these these bridge loans that are now maturing this year. So there's a report that recently was published by Fitch, which is a ratings agency for a lot of the, the CMBS loans, so the commercial mortgage-backed security market, right? So these are a lot of, you know, loans uh, that are kind of done at a big level on multifamily. And they uh, looked at kind of what's maturing this year. And 25% of the loans that are maturing this year they estimate would not qualify for a refinance, but mm. due to either leverage concerns or debt service coverage concerns, uh, meaning there, there's not enough operating income at the property level to support a refinance, right? So that's that's a pretty big yellow flag, and if not a red flag. And uh, what I think is going to happen, you know, meanwhile we have these kind of brooding problems on on the maturing debt side of things that's putting a lot of pressure on operators and uh, and sellers. And then you have a record number of completions being brought to the market. So there's a lot of development that happened a couple of years ago. It takes about 24 months to start bringing new properties to the market. Um, and it's estimated that, you know, right now through kind of the next, you know, three or four quarters, it's going to be the highest number of deliveries of new multifamily units being delivered uh, in recent history, right? So that's that's also not great news for, for those that are trying to you know, increase rent. So you have a lot of a lot of these factors that are putting a lot of pressure, you know, uh, negative pressure on these properties. But I think if you take a step back and look at like a three to five year time frame, we still have a massive shortage of housing units in the U.S. And so I think there there's going to be some turbulence in the in the short run, but demand just continues to be strong, you know, and it's kind of softening. You're starting to see some of the Sunbelt markets are having negative rent growth year over year. Uh, but that's more an issue of more a lot of supply coming into the market, right? Where there's a lot new, a lot of new units being delivered. But I think over the next 12 to 18 months, a lot of that stabilizes, and I think it's still you know continuing to be a good good investment. So I mean, kind of a major rabbit trail there, but I know a lot of people are thinking about that. Like people are, are invested in multifamily and are concerned. 
you know, I think it's really understanding um, what are the, what are the debt terms at the underlying property level. What's the NOI? And, you know, is there going to be some kind of plan B optionality for getting a refinance to kind of to get to ride through some of the potential you know, turbulence in the next uh, kind of 12 months? But all that to say, um, we are also seeing a lot of other opportunities, uh, and especially right now that probably number one asset class in real estate that we're excited about is industrial. Um, and industrial is, uh, you know, it's it's been on a tear for the past decade. It's actually you know, done very, very well. Um, national vacancy, I think, is somewhere, uh, it's below 3% nationwide in industrial, especially the newer vintages. And a lot of that's been caused by um, kind of e-commerce boom, right? So as Amazon has taken over the world and is shipping a lot of things, uh, that has caused a lot of need for warehouse space. And so these kind of big, big box industrial real estate properties, um, there's been a huge amount of completions, but the absorption's been there. The, a lot of these are getting absorbed just because of all the demand. And so a lot of people are kind of concerned, hey, you know, the the end of the industrial era is kind of e-commerce uh, as a percentage of retail sales is plateauing, right? It's probably got some room to run, but not at the same rate. A lot of people are concerned. Maybe it's, you know, the writing's on the wall. Um, but we actually believe it's kind of about to kind of hit another phase, you know, the the next level of booster rockets to, to get to the next level of orbit here um, in industrial because there's a whole other trend that's happening that we think is a, a decade plus long trend and that trend is deglobal and uh bringing manufacturing and uh you know inventory back to the us so so nearshoring and reshoring um are are two big trends that we started to see really the beginnings of the last year um year and a half uh just last year it's estimated that there was uh, $5 trillion of, of reshoring initiatives being spent domestically to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. and to bring um, uh, inventory back, back to the U.S. in a lot of ways. And what's causing this, you know, it's, it's somewhat kind of intuitive to investors that, you know, went through COVID here and, and saw a lot of supply chain issues going on, um, a lot of just the, the the issues that these companies were having in delivering product and you know, getting things from overseas to the, the end consumer. And so what happened is it kind of created this massive disruption in the supply chain system. And the calculus for a lot of these companies has changed, right? Maybe I could, you know, 10 years ago, produce things a lot cheaper and kind of this just-in-time inventory system um, could get things right when I needed it. But now wages have actually gone up a lot. There's actually been a 15x increase in wages in China specifically. It's had the highest, the highest level of wage growth in history. I mean, it's it's crazy to look at, um, you know, how much more expensive it's become over the past 15 years. And then, you know, you kind of, uh, I think companies underpriced the risk of the supply chain being disrupted, right? And so now you have, you know, Ford Manufacturing, I think they've, you know, gotten through some of the issues, but they have still a massive backlog of inventory of, of trucks that they cannot sell. They're sitting on, you know, lots pretty much completed, except they don't have little microchips to put in them, right? Because they can't get them fast enough. And so how valuable is it? I think the last I looked, they had you know $5 billion worth of inventory that was nearly completed that they can't sell. How valuable is it to Ford to invest in you know critical component manufacturing back in the US? Maybe it costs a little bit more for that one component, but it actually creates a whole lot more uh, you know consistency and reliability of their supply chain and delivering you know the vehicles to the market. So 
you know, again, going a lot, a lot of tangents here, but we're very, very bullish on industrial. And that's probably our number one real estate asset class we're looking at right now. And very, fa very fascinating. And then, um, so, you know, we talked about multifamily industrial, talked about a little bit of the macroeconomic trends and um, what's, uh, I know we have a few more minutes left. And I know, for example, a lot of, um, you know, people who may want to, you know, kind of do what the bigger players are doing. You talk about alternative investments and kind of go through kind of the categories and, you know, what the big institutions and endowments are doing and with some of the advantages of getting into those types of opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you're really curious, you could check out our podcast. If you want to hear some of the research that we've done, some of our earlier podcasts, we actually did a whole, you know, uh, laying out kind of the groundwork for, for this concept and some of the research, you know, for those that just kind of want to get some really good data, um, get their hands on some good data, check out Tiger 21 Global. You might be familiar with this this group, uh, Chris. So it's it's basically a, um, uh, a pretty cool group that you have to have at least $20 million of investable uh, assets to join. And then what they do is they survey um, all their constituents, I think quarterly, and they will publish kind of an average portfolio allocation you know, pie chart. You've all seen those pie charts of what are you invested in? Um, and they publish that quarterly. And it's pretty cool to see because these are very successful investors. Um, you get a pretty good sample size and they have several thousand members. So you have a pretty good sense of, of the reliability of the data. And you can look at, you know, in the allocations I've, I've studied this over the past couple of years, they don't really change much over time, right? They're pretty you know, locked in from a within maybe five percentage point swings on any, you know, given quarter. But most of the time it's, you know, 25 uh, public equities, it's 25% real estate, 25 private equity. So not real estate, but you actually buying businesses, leverage buyouts generally. And then the other 25% is kind of a mix, a lot of different things like commodities, cash, bonds, uh, maybe a little bit of crypto, um, other things, right? So it's that's kind of been the allocation that, we, that, that we've seen pretty consistent. That's also pretty well mimicked by a lot of the big endowment funds, like Yale Endowment was a pioneer in this space. And so the 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 kind of simple question is, well, if this is how the most wealthy are investing, why, why shouldn't I be doing it? And it's a great question because I would say most people should be, right? If you have a net worth of greater than a few million dollars, you can definitely, you know, take some of uh, the liquidity risk is probably the biggest risk that you're taking. Meaning, you know, the benefit of having all your money in the stock market, stocks and bonds is you can pull it out anytime you want, but it's also a double-edged sword, right? Because we're emotional investors and it's difficult to um, time the market. So at a certain point of net worth, I think it makes sense to start allocating in a bigger way to these, these private alternatives. You know, as far as access to private equity, uh, that's probably one of the more challenging ones to get access to because you it is kind of more consolidated with some some of the bigger groups. You know, I don't have a whole lot of recommendations there, but as far as the real estate goes, I mean, I know you interview a lot of different real estate syndicators and most people probably know places to kind of get involved there. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the basic... You know, approach that we've seen from most of the wealthy investors. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. And um, how can people uh, check out Aspen funds, you know, check out your social media, you see the work that you do. Yeah. Um, the easiest way is if you, if you like podcasts, you can check out ours. It's uh, the billionaire podcast.com or invest like a billionaire on any platform you listen on. Um, and then our, our private equity firm is Aspen. Um, so you can check out that we have a few 
few offerings that are always live um, and uh, things that are going on that we kind of are, are excited about. And for all the listeners out there, let's thank Ben for coming onto the show, talking about what his company does, kind of the macro landscape. All of his resources will be in the links and show notes. And thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. listening if you liked it be sure to like comment share subscribe we're on everywhere spotify itunes google amazon audible and without much ado be sure to thank this show's sponsors and we'll see you next week